infant baptism, since that is uh, probably uh, one of the critical things we cover in the class, because that's a pretty good distinctive of being Presbyterian. And some of you may or may not come from traditions that practiced it. And I have found, uh, this is just my own experience, people who come from the Presbyterian tradition just take it for granted that that's what you do, and they never really study it. And people that come from a Baptistic tradition, like me and others, have to be convinced that we work a lot harder at it. And that's just, that makes sense when you think about it. So I don't know whether to start with the baptism and see what time we have left with just talking about the sacraments in general. Let's start with the sacraments in general, and I may not, I'm going to cut this off in about 15 minutes and go straight to how my mind has uh, changed regarding baptism uh, and sort of give you what I think is a much more full orb presentation of that than you usually get when I baptize somebody up front. I don't have time to go through 13 or 14 pages of explanation on why we're doing it. But I think it's important to know that. And also listen to Gerstner, if you will, on all of these things. So let's start with prayer. Father, I thank you for every person here, their commitment to be here and to listen and to learn. We just pray your blessings on our time. I pray you would help me uh, have a focused and uh, live mind and uh, just be uh, speak through me uh, by your spirit that which we need to think about, know, meditate on that would uh, provide us and equip us with what we need to be leaders in your church. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, sacrament. How many sacraments do we have in the Presbyterian Church? Two, right? Two of them. And they are what? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, now, I guess the first thing that would come into mind is what is a sacrament? What does the word sacrament mean? The Greek word from which uh, sacrament is a Latin translation is the word mysterion. Mysterion, M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, which sounds like what? Mystery. Well, that sacrament is a mystery. So, yeah, uh, sacrament is also a military term. Uh, an oath of obedience is administered by the commander. Uh, a sacrament is a thing set apart as sacred. And then later, sacraments had to do with conveying grace. Sacraments are a means of grace. Now, the definition of a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. And so I've already told you they're two instituted by Christ. Um, by the way, sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. What do signs do? They point or signify, right? 
I know it's bad to use the word in the definition. But they point beyond themselves to something else, right? Like if you see a sign on the way to Disneyland, and your kids are in the car with you, and they see that sign, and they think it's Disneyland, but yet it says it's 175 miles, then that sign is not the reality. It's pointing to the reality 150 miles away. Uh, what is a seal? What does seal mean in the sacrament? All right, it confirms the promise. It uh, brings assurance. It brings comfort. Uh, you could you could say that yeah it is especially in reference to infant baptism it is a badge of kind of identity, but when when sacraments seal to us like we take the Lord's Supper, it's primarily seals to us the assurance that we have uh, in Christ because of His person and work which we're communing we're having communion with the body and blood of Jesus offered for us upon the cross during the Lord's Supper. And so uh, they are instituted by Christ. There are two of them. Luther called them the bath and the bread. Uh, Old Testament uh, reality, or Old Testament uh, things that pointed to the reality that we observe in the Lord's Supper would be circumcision, is points to ultimately baptism and Passover, of course, uh, became, as it were, the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent declared that there are how many sacraments? Do you know that? Seven? The two we just mentioned, and what else? Penance, priestly ordination, marriage, confirmation, and extreme unction. My, my uh, grandmother, Pam's mother, was a staunch Southern Baptist, but she worked in a Catholic hospital, and, and she worked with babies. And when babies were dying, and no one was there to do it, she baptized because that's what they told her to do. I said, you're not a very good Baptist if you're doing that. But uh, that's what happened. So, uh, three principal elements to a sacrament. Um, the Mennonites also add to, do you know what the Mennonites add to Lord's Supper and baptism? Foot wash. It's a sacrament in the Mennonite church. That's a dirty sacrament. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's fine. Uh, I don't see any precedent for it, but I guess Jesus said to do this, but I don't think he literally meant that. <laughs> Uh, Salvation Army, by the way, and the Society of Friends called the Quakers do not administer any sacrament. I thought they were all dead now. <laughs> C.I. Schofield and uh, Darby before him, Darbyism, and they don't do sacraments. Wow, that is. You wonder how they conceive of the church then. The church is a hiccup. It's an afterthought. It's a blip in God's program for Israel usually. Yeah. 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 
And so the visible sign is water and baptism, bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, and uh, which are both visible pictures of God's Word, and the senses involved in the Lord's Supper are all touch, taste, smell, sight, and hearing. Uh, sacraments are not only visible signs, but they're an invisible grace, that to which it points and seals. Baptism points and seals the washing of rebirth, forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, death and resurrection, and entry into the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual feeding and communion with the people of God on the blood and body of Christ. Now, the sacramental relationship is just the theologian's way of saying that there are a number of ways this has been conceived of, uh, and that We'll get into that on the last page of this with the, the Roman view, the Lutheran view, the Zwinglian view, and the Reformed view. But the sacramental relationship, Roman uh, Catholic identifies the sacrament with something they call ex operari operato from the work done. In other words, they don't believe faith has to be present. That if you administer the sacrament to a person, they receive the grace, regardless of whether they have faith. Yeah, they do believe in infusion. And one thing I, I learned about the Catholics when I lived in Louisiana, because when there are more people than there are Catholics living around, or more Catholics than there are people, you have to kind of learn about where they're coming from. And I spent a good deal of time studying Catholic theology, which is also relevant to Reformation theology. The Westminster Confession was written to whom? It's written both to the Catholics and who else? The Anabaptist and who else? The Enthusiast. Luther said the Enthusiast swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. That's what he said. But the Enthusiasts were more of like the Montanists, sort of the, the charismatic types. And the Anabaptists were those who rebaptized infants who had been baptized in the Catholic Church. And then, uh, of course, the Reformed uh, is what the Confession addresses those two. It's, it's helpful to remember that when you're going through that. Um, so the preaching of the Word should always att attend the administration of the sacrament, uh, and only in the light of the Word, the administration of the sacrament is not always simultaneous with what the sign signifies. Now, what's that referring to? I baptize an infant, right, who does not know the gospel, never heard of Jesus, can't talk, can barely, I mean, you know, they're an infant. But they do not immediately, we don't believe in baptismal regeneration. But at that moment in second. Now, can God regenerate anybody anywhere, anytime if he wants to? Yeah, he can. And he has. Uh, think of the prophet Jeremiah. Think of John the Baptist. Uh, but, um, so when the sacrament of baptism is given to an infant, the reality of what that signifies may happen later, right? But we don't need to rebaptize. Why? they've already received the sign of the covenant. Okay. Um, let me see. One other thing I want to say here. 
The sacrament is a means of grace, which would be said something like a channel or a conduit through which God's grace is given to those who eat or are baptized in faith. Now, the Lord's Supper is called by numerous terms. It's called the Eucharist. It's called communion. It's called the breaking of the bread, uh, the Last Supper, um, the Passover, Passover meal has been referred to as that. It's rooted in the Last Supper on the night Jesus was betrayed. The Lord's Supper uh, is, of course, a Passover, a continuing ordinance. Uh, point B, Jesus says, this is my body. Uh, and uh, this is my body broken for you. This is my body, which is what? Literally my body? No. Jesus said, I am the door. Does that mean he's a door? No. I mean, there are lots of places. In other words, this represents my body. That is an interpretation. It is a way of seeing it, but that's what that means. It doesn't mean literally, this is my flesh. Although early Christians were accused of being what? Cannibals. So there you go. Uh, the new exodus and the new covenant and Passover meal, the past events were made to come alive again in the present. In every day, uh, uh, in every generation uh, in the Old Testament, people were on Passover re to regard themselves as coming out of Egypt uh, and his sacrifice, Jesus himself termed it as a new exodus. And... Uh, so death, his death, established the new covenant, and disciples receive a genuine communion with his death. Uh, the cup of the covenant, you've heard me say this many times in administration of it, uh, is the cup of wrath. There's a, a blessing of a full cup. There's a judgment of the bitter cup and the cup of wrath that Jesus anticipated in Gethsemane. But only by drinking the cup of divine wrath can the new covenant be actualized for us. A repeated celebration uh, as a confession of dependence, taste again through faith the benefits of the holy sacrifice. And the supper has a forward look, looks forward to the end of the age until he comes, celebrates with conscious anticipation of the coming fullness of the kingdom. Now, have I been 15 minutes yet? Let me just sum up these four major views uh, briefly because I really want to get to the infant baptism issue because this is going to be much longer. Um, transubstantiation, tell me what this is. Yeah. Yeah. You almost got to know Latin to know what the Catholics are talking about. Occidence is what? Does anybody know? That's the external appearance. Accidents is what? The substance. The substance. So Catholics argue that that doesn't change, but that does. Okay? That's what transubstantiation is. And so they say it retains the properties and taste of the form, but in reality and in the substance, are nothing other than the true body and blood of Christ. Uh, are any of you Catholics? You were, yeah. You were? 
Yeah, and you? Uh, did you worry about chewing? Yeah, so you just let it melt in your mouth? Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, well, if that's what you believe it is, I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> did you do it? Oh, you never encountered Me neither. All right. Well, during the Mass, of the, there's the elevation of the host, right? And of the sacrificial victim for worship of the congre- congregation and the communion of one kind. Uh, the wine is for the priest. Does the, do the laity now take wine? I haven't been to Catholic Church, do they? The common cup? Just the priest. I think they changed that, though, didn't they? Don't they dip it in the wine? And... There's a whole bunch of ways to do it. Is it? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm sure. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, you don't want to. you got to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. The Lutheran view is called consubstantiation, and that means that the Lutheran's view means the body and blood of Christ are in, with, and under the elements. No change in substance, but when partaken, actually, uh, you're actually receiving the glorified body of Christ, which they believe is ubiquitous. What's ubiquity mean? Everywhere. Everywhere. R.C. Sproul used to in class all the time when he talked about ubiquity, he would always say, Semper, uh, what is it? What were we talking about, ubiquity? Semper ubi, sub ubi. Always wear underwear, is what he would write. And that's how, that's how you know what ubiquity is, is the awareness of God. God is everywhere. I don't know how I remember that stuff, but I do. just have that kind of mind. All right, that's why we differ with our Lutheran brethren, because we do not believe that the crucified, glorified body of Christ at the right hand of the Father is ubiquitous. It is located where? Right hand of the Father. He has a body, and a body takes up what? So he's somewhere. The Reformed view, or Zwinglian view, this is what most uh, Baptistic types hold. It's just the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's remembering his death. Uh, it reminds the person of Calvary. It calls for rededication. Christ is present only in the sense that he's always present to the believer through the Holy Spirit. And so there's no, there's only a past look in most Baptistic circles, which is Zwinglian in its view. And then the reform view is Calvin, Christ is truly partaken of when the communicant comes in true faith, the whole Christ is partaken of flesh and spirit uh, in a mystical uh, way so that it's spiritually partaking the flesh and spirit of Christ. By the spirit, the church is lifted up in the supper to fellowship with Christ and feed on him for the nourishing of her faith. Now, what is pedo communion? Pedo means what? Child. Communion. What do those people believe about communion? 
You should give communion to children. Why do we not do that here? Right. We believe that a person has to be able to discern the body and blood and also the community implications of the supper as well. So that's why we don't do it. Others do it because they... Why do others do it? What is their argument? Children participated in what? Passover. All right, into baptism. Let me erase the board. Might be writing a lot up here. Now, I did not grow up. I think all of you know this, so I'm not going to go long on it. Uh, This is sort of the steps through which I went to arrive at the position that I could hold with confidence. You have to understand, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary in 1984. And uh, Reformed Theological Seminary is not a PCA seminary. It's not a denominational seminary. And so I had classmates who were Assembly of God. I had classmates who were Southern Baptist. We even had Methodist classmates at Reformed Theological Seminary. So it was a real variety type of people. And uh, so issues like this were talked about. And uh, so... The position I've arrived at is pretty much, I believe it's consistent with the Bible to baptize infants and children of believers. And I want to let you know what the biblical evidence was that persuaded me to change my mind from holding a believer's baptism position. Believer's baptism is called what? Credo? Credo Baptist? Credo means what? Faith? And then there's Pado, which baptism of children, right? Those are the two, two pretty much views. And so for 13 years, I was a Southern Baptist preaching, and I administered baptism, lots of them, uh, to those who were converted as, as adults, and... Um, Now, I believe that both, you do baptize adult believers who have not been baptized, and infants and children of believers should be baptized. Now, this kind of issue about baptism, does baptism save you? Is this a salvific issue? It is not. It could even be argued that this is tertiary. What does tertiary mean? Third. Third level kind of doctrine. Uh, the gospel is a primary. Uh, the trinity is primary. Uh, the two natures and one person of Christ is primary. Uh, the atonement is primary. But then you get down to these issues where scripture does not explicitly say what? Do it or don't do it, right? There is no explicit command in the New Testament which tells us you are a believing parent and you have a child or a baby, that baby should be baptized. Nowhere said, is it? Okay. Just want to make that clear. So that's why people have differing positions on this issue, is it not? Because there's no explicit text which which clearly says one way or the other. Um, 
So I don't consider this issue one on which our trust relationship with Jesus depends, nor do I believe it should disrupt our fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ who see things differently. I have to have that position because Pam and I are the only two baby baptizers on either side of our family. Okay? They do not trust me. Do you understand that? I'm the weird guy. I'm the, I'm the uh, stray dog, as it were, because... Uh, she has one uncle who's a PCA elder, but he doesn't live anywhere near the rest of them. But, uh, and I have been in his church and preached in his church. So I get respect out of him. The rest of them just look at me like, what happened to you? What did you do? And if they bother me enough, I'll tell them I learned how to read. <laughs> and that really makes them mad. Which I shouldn't do that. But I get, I get a lot of grief about it. But... Since I'm such a mature and, uh, yeah, I just let it roll off my back usually. Uh, they don't ever want to ask me the question why. And this is the difficult thing about this issue, and I don't want to take any more time in introduction, just get right into it, is this is complicated. This is not simple. This can't be done in a sentence. The best, the best single sentence paragraph I've ever read for the pur purpose of establishing infant baptism was by Charles Hodge, and he said it this way. He said, uh, when Abraham was told to circumcise his son on the eighth day, and Ishmael as well, and all his servants and all his household that were male, God put children in the covenant community then, and he's never taken them out. You cannot find a place where God says, don't administer the sign of the covenant to children. It is. Well, I hope by the time I get through that, it'll be clear. <laughs> it's a good, good comment, though, Ron. Um, the difference of views on infant baptism, unfortunately, does affect Christians' ability to demonstrate and practice our unity in the body of Christ. Uh, Infant baptizers can and do recognize that baptism received by believers' baptizers are genuine Christian baptism, although we think they may have been administered later than it should be the case with children of Christian parents. But believers' baptizers cannot accept that believers who were baptized as infants have been baptized at all. So if believers' believer baptizers are right, if people who have received infant baptism have not received biblical baptism at all, then there have been hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, of Christian believers who never obeyed the Lord's command to be baptized in his name as a believer, such as Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, J. Gresham Machen, J.I. Packer, John Stott, R.C. Sproul. I could go on and on. You do realize that this believer's baptism position is relatively new in the history of the church. That the dominant position in the history of the church from the first century onward has been what? Infant baptism. Uh, Origen even makes a statement about it around 158, which is pretty close, 158 BC, pretty close to the time. Now, that uh, if, if I was a Baptist and I heard somebody say that, I would say, that means nothing. Uh, it doesn't prove anything. 
Well, it does at least establish that it has been a practice of the church. Although this question is not salvific, it is certainly worthy of investing our time and thought and study to see uh, whether we can come to unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that, that's actually a very strong argument. It is strong Because if the apostles had established your credo-baptism when they made up the church that was established throughout the Mediterranean world, this is 70 or 80 years later, yeah. there would have been a significant controversy. We probably have a little bit of evidence on that. I would think so, yeah. yeah. Now here's what, when I was a Baptist, this is what I thought. I'm in seminary with all these reform guys. I really respect them and like them, and they do their homework. They study hard. They really search the scriptures. They're passionate about it. But this is a leftover remnant of Roman Catholicism, and we just need to get rid of it. You know, and they didn't get rid of it. They held on to it for some some reason. So that's what I thought. So the best friend that I had at seminary was a guy named Bruce Lax, and he was from Kentucky. And he talked just like me, so we had, we got along really well. And uh, he was from Western Kentucky. I'm from Western Tennessee. Probably wasn't 70 miles from where we grew up from one another. I'm a little older than him. But I was struggling with infant baptism my senior year in seminary. Nobody was putting any pressure on me. Nobody was backing me in the corner saying, why don't you believe it? It's just it was sort of an issue that you decided for yourself. Nobody was putting pressure on me. And I do remember sitting down with Bruce one day, and I said, Bruce, you were a Southern Baptist pastor. Now you're in the PCA. How do you baptize babies? And he said this to me, and I didn't realize how wise it was until about 20 years ago. He said this. He said, when you look at baptism as a Southern Baptist, you look at it through the lenses of soteriology, but you do not look at it through the lens of covenant theology and ecclesiology. So you have a one-dimensional baptism. You do not see it as an entrance right into the community of believers. You see it simply as, he said, I know, I was a Southern Baptist, that you're buried with Christ in baptism, raised again, and so you take them in the tank, immerse them, bring them up, and then say, raised again to walk in what? Newness of life. I'll have to tell you the time that I baptized a woman who weighed close to 400 pounds. We did not know, or I didn't think about water displacement. <laughs> and so when you take someone that size under the water, first I was worried about getting her up. That was the first thing. And and I didn't want any embarrassment. You don't want to do that. Uh, so we had a little curtain, and it was open, and we had a little glass, uh panel of glass right above the baptistry. And so I take her under, she's holding my arms. I told her, I, I said, I'm going to do it like this. And then you grab my arms and I'm going to use all my legs and you try to pull yourself up in the water. But when she came up, she came up like a bullet, just whoop. But then the water splashed over the baptistry and got all of the men soaking wet and pretty much the alto section as well. <laughs> At that point, I thought, maybe I ought to be a Presbyterian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little easier.
Now, how should we expect the Bible to answer the infant baptism uh, question? Should babies of Christians be baptized? I was expecting or looking for the Bible to answer the question with an explicit statement in one or more verses. I read verses like Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or Acts 16, 31 to 34, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Immediately he and all his family were baptized. He had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. The order of things seemed so clear in my Baptist mind, repentance, faith, then baptism. What could be plainer or simpler? It's obvious. That's what I thought. Now everybody, everybody agrees that adult converts from Judaism and paganism must be baptized. But then someone pointed out something to me throughout the book of Acts, and we read about the conversion of people who were not Christians or the children of Christians. These people, now let me repeat that. When I was reading the book of Acts, somebody pointed out to me that throughout the book of Acts, we read about the conversion of people who were not Christian or the children of Christians. The people, both Jews and Gentiles alike, had not grown up as the children of the New Covenant Christians. The preaching examples of conversions and acts all have to do with missionary situations. And so the book of Acts and baptism, the focus is on what? Missionary situation in which the gospel is preached, people believe, and they're baptized. Those are adult converts. Now I want you to listen to the flow of this argument carefully because there's more to say. Um, the preaching and examples of conversions all have to do with missionary situations in which the gospel entering the lives of individuals and families and communities for the first time. Everyone, believer Baptist or infant Baptist alike, agrees that in circumstances like these, when people have not grown up in Christian families and the covenant community of the church, those converted as adults need to receive baptism when they confess their faith in Jesus. But Acts is silent when it comes to children born to Christian parents. Acts never explicitly describes a situation that would make crystal clear how the apostles handled the situation of children born to Christian parents. Obviously, if Acts had spoken directly and clearly on this point, the discussion between the believer Baptist and the infant Baptist would have been settled long ago. In particular, number one, Acts never tells us about an adolescent or young adult who's been raised from infancy by parents who believed in Jesus and who then received baptism only after he or she personally expressed his or her faith in Christ. You will not find in the book of Acts. Number two, although Acts records baptisms of whole households, it never explicitly states whether or not there were infants or young children in any of these homes, or whether infants in the household were excluded from receiving baptism because they were too young to express faith and repentance in Christ. 
Acts and the rest of the New Testament never record any statement by Jesus or the apostles that infants of believers are now to be treated differently in the New Covenant from the way that infants of Israelite believers were treated in the Old. Namely, the New Testament never states that whereas Israelite children were treated as part of the covenant community, the children of Christians are to be treated as outside the covenant community. And so those who believe in credo-baptism, where do you put their children? Well, if you do not believe in the covenant community, and that baptism is a right of entrance into the covenant community, then they have to be where? Outside, not inside. I'm going to get to that. That's that's the one that got me. I was preaching through 1 Corinthians in the Baptist church, and when I studied that passage, I said, it's over. I'm done. Yeah, I'm going to get there, but thanks for bringing up. You're thinking good there. Just a little ahead. The other changes that are um, occurred with the coming of Christ are clearly indicated in the New Testament. Circumcision is not to be required of Gentiles. That's what Paul says in Galatians. Both Jews and Gentiles who come to faith must be baptized. Uh, animal sacrifices are done away with because of Jesus' final sacrifice. The kosher dietary laws no longer apply because Jesus cleanses people from all nationalities. The temple in Jerusalem is replaced by a living temple made up of people, 1 Peter 2. But the New Testament never hints that the relationship of believers' children to the church community has changed. The New Testament never suggests that all before Jesus' coming, Israelite children were inside the covenant community and received the covenant sign of circumcision, the boys, that is. Since Jesus' coming, the children of believers are outside the community and therefore excluded from the covenant sign of baptism. We'll come back to this uh, uh, when we consider the way the New Testament views children of believers. But now I just simply wanted to show you how I came to recognize that in no New Testament text that answers the point-blank Christian should be a question, should believers have their children baptized? Now, starting with broader themes where the Bible speaks clearer, all right, that's a way to approach this subject with a little more depth. Um, we interpret that which is not clear in the light of the clear. The only problem is nobody agrees always what's clear and what's not. But we do see some things that are just categorically true and undeniable. Uh, so then, where do we go from here? We approach the question like uh, other even more important questions like the Trinity, the mystery of the person of Christ, both fully God and fully man. We approach it from the perspective of broader, bigger questions that the Bible answers clearly for us. Then, since God's word is consistent from beginning to end, we carefully draw conclusions from what we know the Bible teaches. And so the clear will cast light on that which is uh, unclear in many ways. Um, I remember being in seminary and I had gone to a Baptist, my degree it was from Dallas Baptist College, which is my undergraduate bachelor's degree. And I had a, a major in religion and philosophy. 
and religion was pretty much Baptist Christianity. And uh, I, I just remember that these issues never came up. But when I got to Reform Seminary, what blew me away in that school was the focus on the Old Testament. That there are 39 whole books here that I as a Baptist would only use for purposes of illustrating something in the New Testament or psychologize a particular person in the Old Testament. I did not understand the history of redemption well. I knew the stories in the Old Testament, but I didn't see. It was like somebody just drew back the curtains and I went, I went oh my goodness, how have I missed all this? And so you can't really understand the connection between circumcision and baptism and the connection between, between the covenant community and those outside the covenant community unless you have a great understanding of the Old Testament and also remember that how much of the Old Testament is in the New Testament? A great deal. Now, if you want to get theological on me, here's where it comes down to. I have a whole book in my library entitled Continuity and Discontinuity. And the continuity has to do with how much of that which was um, characteristic or characterized or designated Israel in the Old Testament, how much of that continues under the New Covenant? How much of the Old Covenant continues on? How much changes? And so there are people who believe, well, Israel and the church are two separate entities, so therefore whatever applies to Israel doesn't apply to the church because the church and Israel are two separate peoples. They're not the one people of God, and so therefore they would relegate the Old Testament as law and as something that has no application in reality to Christians, and that is dispensationalism. Ultra. Now dispensationalism is what's called progressive, and they're actually acknowledging that maybe it's possible that God only has one people. If they ever do that, they're done. They're done. But, but there's a system of total continuity that the church, everything that happened in the Old Testament refers to the people of God, transfers over to the church in the New Testament, and they are called what? Theonomist. <laughs> so you have dispensationalists and you have theonomist. Theonomist, theo, God, nomos, law. They believe that all the uh, stuff that Jesus fulfilled let's see, the law regarding the sacrificial system and all the distinctions and uh, government, everything referring to law as, as far as the nation and the kingdom, still apply to the church. As a good friend of mine used to say, especially in the area of capital punishment, they want to kill everybody, we need to discipline and share the gospel with them. That's what the anonymous want to do, because they want to kill the infidel. They back off of that. They don't want to start there. But that's where they end up. So, enough of that on that. This is more complicated than simply pointing to a verse or two. Okay? Uh, it's also safer than drawing our own conclusions from what a particular verse says or does not say. Suppose every Christian concluded that Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10 are addressed literally to us all. Here's what he said in Mark 10, 
verse 21. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, then come and follow me. Are we all supposed to do that? Well, then why does it say in 1 Timothy, if you don't work and provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, right? So how do you reconcile those two things? You can't take one verse and build a monument on it, okay? Uh, but that's kind of how people do. Um, so, we need to do the same with infant baptism, recognize that there's more to it. So, what do we know, or what we do know is circumcision, we're going to talk about circumcision for a moment. Circumcision was administered to infant Israelite boys. One clear place to start is in Genesis 17, 9 through 14, with the fact that circumcision was administered to infant Israelite boys at the age of eight days. This sign of God's covenant was given to Abram, Abraham long before the law was given to Moses in Mount Sinai. Apparently, all those circumcised that day in response to God's command were older than infancy. Abraham was 99, Ishmael was 13, other males, including servants, were no doubt of various ages, but their age and thus their mental and spiritual ability to respond to God's promise in faith was irrelevant. All were circumcised because Abraham believed God. There was no mention of the presence of faith in their circumcision either, only Abraham. Circumcision was a sign of salvation and blessing that are received by faith. God calls circumcision a sign of his covenant, so then we can ask what circumcision signified, what it pointed to in terms of the relationship of Abraham and his family to the Lord. Circumcision was a sign of transformation of the heart, new birth by the Spirit. Later in the Old Testament, God made it clear that external circumcision of the flesh was a sign and symbol of the spiritual cleansing that God calls circumcision of the heart. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Deuteronomy 10.16 Moses prophesies that Israelites will disobey God and receive the judgments they deserve, especially uh, the Babylonian exile. But after this, God will regather them to the land, return under Ezra and Nehemiah, and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. I believe God is referring to this promise when he says through Ezekiel, I will gather you from all the countries. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Now, but outward, here's another thing you need to think, however. But outward circumcision did not guarantee circumcision of the heart. Now, receiving external circumcision did not guarantee that an Israelite boy who had received spiritual circumcision or would later receive spiritual circumcision, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Uh, and the whole, uh, even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. How shocking for Israelites to hear the words that just as with Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, they themselves will also be judged. Sounds like Romans chapter 2 to me and 3, that they're shocked 
that they're not exempt from subject from judgment because they have been circumcised. Now, circumcision was a sign of righteousness we receive by faith. In the light of God's teaching in the Old Testament, we can understand Paul's comments on circumcision in Rome. First, Paul points out that circumcision that counts is the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And then without the spiritual cleansing, the external surgery uh, brings no blessing or favor from God. Then he comments on God's first command to Abraham to circumcise his household. Abraham received the sign of circumcision. And what is the sign of circumcision? A seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So that's where we get the idea that sacraments are signs. Because the sacrament of the Old Testament, circumcision, is a sign of righteousness by faith, which is what? Justification. The righteousness of Christ. So, Paul says that Abraham is not only the spiritual father of uncircumcised Gentile believers, but also of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so, circumcision symbolized the righteousness that believers like Abraham receive by faith, just as it symbolized cleansing and renewal of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but, this is important, yet God commanded that it be administered to Israelite baby boys at eight days old before anyone could tell whether God had changed or would change their heart by his spirit, whether he would enable them to trust his promises. So understand that circumcision guaranteed what? Nothing other than they were set apart and they were part of the covenant community. But did it guarantee that the person who was physically circumcised would be spiritually circumcised? No, it did not. Kind of sounds like something. <laughs> so here's the thing. We can't really understand this without understanding. I need to get on my horse here. It's a sign of union with Christ and his sacrificial death. Uh, since the blessings of the new birth and righteousness by faith came to Abraham and other Israelites has come to us, only as a result of Jesus' sacrifice, we could say that circumcision symbolized union with Christ in his death. He's being cut off from his people for us. I mentioned that Sunday. Even though he didn't deserve the curse since he was circumcised both in flesh and in heart. In fact, Paul pretty much says in Colossians 2, 11 through 12, in him you were also circumcised. In his cut offness, we were cut off. And the putting off of the sinful nature, not with circumcision done by hands of men, but with circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Christ was cut off for us, put to death for us. Death for our sins is counted by God as our own death. And so circumcision symbolizes the reality of Christ's suffering as our substitute, and so does baptism. Circumcision, now this is an important point because it's leading to something. Circumcision was applied before anyone could know whether a baby had received or would receive the spiritual blessings it symbolized. You see the case I'm making? If you look at the way, and God in the Old Testament commanded Abraham to circumcise, right? He didn't say it'd be a good idea if you want to. He commanded him to do that. To give him the sign 
of the covenant, old covenant, which is circumcision. Before we move on to consider what baptism symbolizes, we need to reflect on the fact that circumcision in the Old Testament symbolized blessings that came to believers like Abraham by faith in Christ, cleansing and transformation of the heart, forgiveness of sins, right standing before God, and through the sacrifice of Jesus, this symbol was applied to adult Gentile converts when they abandoned their idolatry and confessed in the God of Israel, but it was applied to children, well, just the sons of Israel, eight days after they are born, before mom or dad or priest or rabbi could tell whether the baby would later receive through faith the reality symbolized in circumcision. Now, when we say that our arguments for uh, infant baptism are based on circumcision, this is why, okay? It makes sense if you know what circumcision meant. Now, I can't speak for all Baptists that I knew and have known my whole life, but I have to tell you, I did not understand circumcision. I read about it, but I never studied it because what? didn't apply to me, you know? And once you look at it, begins to lay some groundwork. So baptism symbolizes the transformation of the heart, new birth by the Spirit, the righteousness of faith, and union with Christ in his death. Water baptism symbolizes these same spiritual blessings that circumcision symbolized renewal and transformation of the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit who brings us into a community of faith, a body. Baptism speaks of being such things as united to Christ, clothed with Christ, right with God by faith, Abraham's seed, and heirs of God's promise. It speaks of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection, so that his death for us counted as our death before the justice of God. Water baptism never guarantees that the person receiving it uh, has received or will receive the spiritual blessings it symbolizes, even when adults are baptized after confessing their faith. Now, to my chagrin, as a Baptist pastor, I probably baptized a number of people who later on showed what? They probably weren't converted. They made a profession of faith. Does that happen? Of course it happens. The Bible tells us that there are, in the kingdom of God, there are tares and there are wheat. Jesus said, don't yank out the tares. You might get some of the wheat. But they grow together. And so it's a mixed multitude, to say the least. Now, water baptism doesn't guarantee it. Uh, even when adults are baptized after confessing faith. Just as the external act of circumcision could not guarantee that the recipient would prove to be the recipient of the spiritual reality it symbolized, so the external act of water baptism does not guarantee that the recipient will prove to have received the spiritual reality it symbolized. Remember, Simon of Samaria was baptized, but later his attitude to the Holy Spirit showed that he was still captive to sin. That's Acts 8, 12, and 13, 20 to 23. Peter emphasizes the flood waters that saved Noah and his families were pointing ahead to baptism, not merely the removal of dirt from the body, external water baptism, but the inner spirituality it symbolizes the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Sadly, some churches have practiced infant baptism 
and others have practiced adult believers' baptism under the misunderstanding that the external ceremony automatically produces the new birth it symbolizes or guarantees that the new birth is bound to follow eventually because of the outward ceremony. Okay, that's enough of that said. Why apply baptism to infants before we know whether they will become believers? When I was a Baptist, this was my biggest problem with infant baptism, was that baptism symbolized the spiritual benefits of union with Christ, which are received only by faith. And parents and pastors couldn't know whether or not an infant, infant had or would have this saving faith. But then I began to see that circumcision in the Old Testament symbolized the same blessings of union with Christ, which Old Testament believers received by faith, and which unbelievers in Israel did not receive. So we face the same question for both the Old and New Testament sign, uh, why apply a symbol before we know whether or not the reality is there? Three main reasons. Reason number one, to emphasize God's gracious initiative to us in helplessness. Circumcision or baptism are not events in which the recipient acts, but in which someone else acts, in God's name, on us, or for us. This is true, of course, when an adult is, when an adult is converted and comes for baptism, she doesn't baptize herself. But a pastor applies the water of baptism to her. The apostle's instruction to adults is not baptize yourselves, but be baptized, passive. Receive baptism from someone else. But it's even more obvious when infants are baptized that baptism is announcing to us that God graciously gives a change of heart that we in our spiritual death could never produce in ourselves. To emphasize the mystery role of the family. Now, I could go into great de detail talking about the covenant family. Uh, and the we heard from Christian in Sunday school uh, the whole idea of uh, family devotions and the idea of the covenant family. But there are certain obligations that fall upon parents uh, whose children are baptized to teach them the doctrines of our holy faith, to rear them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, are all household kind of family uh, connections. God makes the point that the family tree doesn't guarantee an individual's salvation or his condemnation. On the other hand, God has set up the family as the context in which his word is to be taught and lived out before children as they grow up. In contrast to the American emphasis on individualism and democracy, God clearly reviewed Abraham as the head of his household, with the authority to command even his servants to undergo the painful procedure of circumcision. Now, God seems to view us both as members of a family influenced by, for good or ill, by our family context and identity as individuals bearing responsibility for our own response to his grace. And so that is uh, what I find striking about bab the baptism of Lydia and her household and of the jailer and his household. There's no way to tell for sure whether or not babies or children are in these households. So both sides of in the infant baptism dialogue read these texts in the light of their own presuppositions. But what we can agree on in these texts is the Holy Spirit speaks of persons involved 
not as disconnected individuals, but as households, as families. Doesn't this suggest that the New Testament, God does not discard the family as a means for extending his gracious covenant kingdom, but rather spreads his grace to and through more families to households not previously reached with salvation? Infant circumcision and infant baptism in themselves emphasize the balance. They are administered to infants not because we presume to know or predict the infant's spiritual state, but because the child is in the home and under the authority of Christian parents, hence the sign belongs not only to birth children, but also to adopted children. Yet the fact that circumcision and baptism are administered to infants at all is a testimony to the fact that birth in a particular family is no guarantee of an ultimate spiritual blessing, Rather, that something more is needed, something that only God can do for us through the shedding of Christ's blood and through the resurrection applied through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in order for us to become the children of God. Now, a while ago, Ron mentioned a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 which talks about an unbelieving husband married to a believing wife and Paul encourages the wife not to leave her husband. Why? Because the children are what? Holy. They're holy. Children of one believing parent are holy. And that literally means what? Set apart. That is a covenantal term. The idea of taking someone and setting them apart. So in terms of how God perceives the children of believers, he sees them as holy and set apart, which is why we administer to them the sign of the new covenant, which is not circumcision, but baptism. To emphasize the life and death consequences of our response to the gospel of Christ, I said earlier the spiritual blessings that both circumcision and baptism symbolize, but that's not the whole story. Both circumcision and baptism are double-edged in that baptism is not only a blessing, but it's what? A judgment. Circumcision was not only to set apart, but also could be a judgment. And so they fall both ways. If you abuse the baptism, uh, one of the ways that I think we as people who baptize our children, we have the obligation to tell our children that they have received uh, the uh, sign of the new covenant, that they've been set apart to belong to God and to rebel against that and rage against that and fail or refuse to repent against that puts them in special danger of judgment. I think that's what Hebrews 6 is about. I think Hebrews 6, where it talks about tasting uh, like communion and I forget all the things it mentions, but that is a covenant child who uh, refuses to repent and return to... Huh? Yeah, they're horrible. Horrible consequences. Yeah. So I see circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament as ongoing testimonies to children raised in Christian homes that there are severe eternal consequences if they turn away from the grace offered in the gospel. But of course, these warnings are intended by the Lord to work along with the wonderful promises of His grace 
to encourage us to stick close to Jesus in living intimate faith and love. Circumcision and baptism mark the boundaries of the community. Uh, that is, circumcision and baptism both symbolize spiritual blessings that are received by faith in Christ and that circumcision was administered to infants before they could give evidence of faith don't prove that now in the New Testament baptism should be administered to covenant children before they personally give evidence of faith. It suggests to me, however, that the fact that an infant cannot express faith doesn't exclude her from receiving the sign that points to the blessings that are received by faith. In, if circumcision in Old Testament and baptism in the New do not absolutely guarantee the person receiving the sign has received or will receive, the spirituality, reality, what's the purpose of these signs? They mark the boundaries of the community that acknowledges Christ's covenant lordship and authority, the church. We cannot infallibly read the hearts of the church as we see it on a day-to-day -day basis. We'll never correspond to God's perfect knowledge of his chosen ones. We don't have supernatural knowledge to know who's in or who's out. So we have to admit our limitations, but the boundaries are set because of uh, being inside. And so, in the New Testament, believers are children in this community. Is it inside or outside? We've already talked about this. So I'm not going to belabor the point. But I want to get down to Peter at Pentecost. Uh, the trend in the New Testament is to include people uh, who used to be outside. Um, the changes in the composition of the covenant people who's removed from the Old Testament to the New are not in the direction of excluding a category of people because of their age or mental immaturity. The most obvious change is that Gentiles, people from other physical families and Abrahams, are welcomed in droves. And so females as well, according to Galatians 23.28, uh, Baptism makes clear what is implied in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 in terms of creation in God's image and now new creation in the image of Christ and in terms of personal value and worth to God, women and men are equal. Galatians makes that clear. Peter at Pentecost, the promise to Jewish converts, their children and Gentiles far off. Probably the most direct answer to our question about whether to baptize infants, comes from Peter's lips on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is the climactic turning point of the transition between the Old Covenant and the New because on Pentecost, the crucified, risen, ascended, and throne, Lord Jesus baptized the church with the Holy Spirit. As John the Baptist had prophesied, Peter's audience was composed of Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism and throughout the Roman world and some of them, despite their heritage as covenant people, had committed treason uh, against God's Messiah, Jesus. When they realized what they had done, Peter told them to repent and receive baptism in Jesus' name. Then he added, and this is the major promise. The promise uh, is for you and who? Your children. Now, if something as major as this was not clearly pointed out at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 where they decided controversies in the church. 
if this had been going on for thousands of years and had changed where now we no longer are to administer the sign of the covenant to children, don't you think somebody would have said something? They did not. Now, that's an argument for silence? No. It's an argument from understanding God's way in the Old Testament. But there is no place in the New Testament where children are forbidden from receiving the sign of the covenant. As much as we wish, somewhere, somebody would have said, <laughs> baptize your children. This, if you understand everything I've said before, gives credence that that did not change. There are a lot of things about the new covenant that are new. But one thing, there's continuity and discontinuity. And one of the elements of continuity is to apply the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism, to children and, and infants. So, uh, the kingdom belongs to little, useless children. Remember, Jesus rebuked his disciples when they wouldn't let the children come to him and trying to shield him from those that were insignificant children. I'm convinced that it was precisely the children's insignificance and uselessness that Jesus had in mind when he said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter. When some people hear these words, um, they think romantically of innocence or simple trust that they suppose children have, but Jesus knew children better than that. His point was that unless you come to the kingdom without any claim that you deserve it, you will never enter. Apparently by Pentecost, Peter had absorbed the point that Jesus made that day. Jesus does not expel children from his community for his kingdom, belongs to them, those left outside, those who refuse to swallow their pride, who refuse to come as insignificant children, unworthy in themselves, but dependent on the king. And then Paul, and I'm wrapping up here in the next two or three minutes. Paul talks to children in the church, calling them to obey their parents in the Lord, which distinguishes between insiders, uh, without distinguishing between insiders who have confessed faith and been baptized, outsiders too young to be baptized as believers. This perspective that ch children are not excluded from the community of the king with the coming of the new covenant also explains that Paul can address children in his letters with instruction that presupposes Christ's authority over them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. For this pleases the Lord. Paul does not talk about two categories of children. Children who have confessed faith and been baptized, and children who have not been baptized are presumed not to be believers. Rather, he speaks to all children present in the congregation and implies their identity in the Lord, their trust in the promises of God, their desire to do what pleases the Lord should motivate all these children to obey their parents. Of course, congregation may include some children who are not born again, not believers, but Paul is not presuming to read individual hearts at a long distance. He's simply treating children as a group, as members of the king's community, under the king's authority, and therefore responsible 
for the king in their response to their parents. We have in the church communicant members and non-communicant members. What is a non-communicant member? Yeah, they do not come to the Lord's table um, because they have not what? Made a profession of faith. You'll see us uh, like somebody goes to the membership class Matter of fact, we have somebody right now who grew up in this church who is uh, going through an interview with the elders to make a confession, of, a profession of faith. She's not done that. And we're looking forward to that. Of course, it's wonderful when that happens. But non-communicant do not participate in communion because they cannot discern what? Body and blood of Jesus. Communicant members are those who are permitted to the table because they profess faith. Uh, then they can participate in communion. But we do not rebaptize. That's anabaptism. We do not rebaptize. Uh, I wrote a paper. I was a Baptist in seminary, and I was incensed at one of the uh, reformers who took a man who was rebaptizing all the people in the parish who had not been baptized since they believed, and they took him out in a boat, tied him up put a covering over him, and uh, said to him, he who baptizes shall be baptized. Threw him over, and he drowned. Now, that's rough, isn't it? That's tough. And I thought, I'm a Baptist. You shouldn't have done that to that guy. <laughs> but I changed my mind. By the time I was a senior, I probably wrote something close to saying he shouldn't have done that. That was extreme. But it's the right position. Now, what about baby dedication? All right, let's, let's be gracious here. The fact that people care about their children and want to, and they probably don't know what I just gave you tonight. I know they don't know that. So they're trying, but they're only doing half of it when they do that. Uh, there is no sign, no setting apart. It's just basically about them and what they plan to do to rear their children. And uh, that's not what infant baptism is about at all. It does involve responsibilities of the parents, but it is regarding the sign being given to children to set them apart as belonging to God. It's the covenant sign of the new covenant. Okay, uh, I could talk more about it, but that's all I got. Questions? You do understand, yes. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, uh, they just hope. They say they didn't have, they didn't reach the age of accountability. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. I know what it is. I used to use it though. Age of accountability in Baptist circles where they died before they were able to have enough maturity and to be able to understand the gospel and believe it. Therefore, they're waved in because of that. In our view, uh, remember when David's child with Bathsheba died? What did he say? Yeah, I will go to him. He will not come to me. I will go to him. Anticipating that David would see him in heaven. And so I, with that, I can't dogmatically say, but here's my view. Every infant that dies is elect. That's my view. <laughs>
No, because then covenant, the baptism or the covenant would be the, the, I don't think you can, we don't know. Well, I, I tend to take the position that if they never had an opportunity, it would be hard to see how, of course, God's sovereign and he can, his goodness is good and his severity is severe. But I would think in mercy, mercy would trump in that God would receive them. That's my hope. That's my hope. In my hope. Hmm? I can't say for sure. I don't have the supernatural knowledge to tell you that. I just don't. I've never heard a, a covenant exclusive argument that only if they've been baptized as infants they'll be saved. I, I don't see that. Yeah. That's why I believe all infants are. <laughs> yeah, I knew that. That's where I got it from. Yeah. I might have missed something. I'll give you the article if you want it. You can read the whole thing. Where we got this parallel from circumcision to baptism, circumcision of male children to baptism of everybody. I mean, it's not just about the but who, like, why, why, uh, like, like, we could have recognized everything that happened in life in some other way. We could have just theologically acknowledged it, like, we have other things. Why did we? Uh, Paul did in Philippians, uh, Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 11 and follow. You've been uh, circumcised not with hands, but by what? Baptism. That's what the passage says. That's where the major, and also the uh, Romans chapter 4, which I'll be preaching on eventually, gets into it with this. this Other questions? Uh-huh. Yeah, Scott. Yeah, that's a problem. Um, what I generally do is try to talk with people. Like, we have some people who asked me Sunday. They came from a church split. Therefore, they're not active members of the church they split from. Should they take communion? And I said, yes, absolutely, if you believe the gospel. I, I tend to be, if I'm going to err in that situation, I will err, err, err to the side of grace on that issue. If they can give me a... Now, some churches are very, very strict 
in their observance communion that elders admit to the table that what's called closed communion. Only people they have interviewed or examined and are fit. Given our world and our context, uh, I, I'm a little more, shall we say, uh, yeah, well, a little more not as close. Yeah, a little more relaxed on that. Because I believe the sacrament's important for Christians. And I, I don't want to deny anybody the opportunity to come to the table. I just don't like doing that. But part of church discipline is what? Suspending people from the sacrament. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Any other questions? This late, I know. I think, yeah, well, I think churches have to determine what their position is on that. That's why we have in our bulletin every Sunday a page devoted to those prayers are in there for that reason. Uh, try to make it clear. It's called fencing the table. And it depends on, I mean, some people fence it where you end up, nobody can do it. I mean, I've just about felt that way before. You know, if you sinned yesterday, don't come. <laughs> or you had an evil thought this morning. Well, driving here, I got 50 evil thoughts. So what are you going to do? No, not really. But yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's for sinners, but repentance. All right, any other questions of substance? Thank you for coming. I know that was a hard one to go through. I hope that at least gives a little more meat to the bones as to why we baptize children. Because we're going to baptize some Sunday, aren't we? Your two boys? Yay, that'll be great. All right, thanks for coming.